the elders have asked that I preach through this short series on marriage. Lord willing, we will conclude the series next week. Today, as we've been looking at various passages in the Bible, we look now at Ephesians 5. Hear now God's word. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us today by his Holy Spirit. Loved ones, the hardest place to live as a Christian is not at work, not in the church, it is in the home. Who we are in front of our spouse, our kids, the computer, the smartphone, that is who we truly are, who we are before the Lord. And who we are at home is a part of our calling. The Reformers rightly said that marriage and parenting are callings in our life. So this isn't just my wife, my kids, but my calling as a husband and as a father. This is important to remember because we can easily fall into marriage amnesia. We can forget who we are and what this is all about. Now as we continue today in Ephesians 5, we're reminded that we are sinners living in a sinful fallen world. There is no perfect marriage. There are spouses in marriage who are sinners who say, I do. But we also remember that redemption in Christ involves the reversal of the curse. So Paul in Ephesians 5 is saying, this is what the Spirit of God is doing in the hearts of men and women to make them more like Christ and to restore the previously distorted relationship in their marriage. Paul is saying here 
the way Christian husbands relate to Christian wives and wives to husbands is a visible manifestation, a picture, a tangible expression of what Jesus is to his church and the church is to Christ. And this is a mystery, he says, that is profound. It is grace-based. We cannot begin to love each other without God's grace. It is gospel-empowered. So because of what Jesus has done, because of his atoning work on the cross, justice has been satisfied. We now have peace with God by faith in Jesus. Now, God says, by the Holy Spirit, live this way in gratitude in your marriages. We look at Ephesians 5. We don't want to say less than the Bible says. We also don't want to say more than the Bible says. First, the Christian wife. In some ways, the world Paul lived in, in the first century, was no different than ours. Same sinful heart, same struggles. One man writes of a Roman woman who had married her 23rd husband, and she was his 21st wife. Some women in that day didn't want children because they thought it would spoil their physical appearance. Men and women would jump from home to home, from marriage to marriage, ad nauseum. In other ways, this world was very different than ours. Most of the wives that Paul wrote to were married for the first time when they were between 12 and 17 years old, kids. It's it said in Paul's, in the, in the ancient Near East uh, or ancient first century context that the average lifespan was in the 20 to 30 year range. So of the wives that Paul is writing to here, some were 15 years old girls nursing their first or second child and they were married to husbands who were perhaps 10 to 30 years older than they were. That's a big difference, isn't it? And yet, we cannot dismiss Paul's message here as culturally outdated. It is not something the church has outgrown. Let's look at verse 21, the context. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What's Paul saying there? Remember verse 18 a little bit before. He's talking about the spirit-filled life. And he's saying submission is part of that. Now, submission is not absolute for any party. It depends on the relationship, doesn't it? Kids and parents, the workplace. And Paul is saying here the way that we submit is to be out of love. In fact, loved ones, all of us are called to mutual submission and mutual love to each other in marriage in church, in our relationships. We are called to consider others and their concerns more highly than our own. Paul is saying here that the calling that we have in the church matters here. Think about that. So maybe you're single, widowed, divorced, not married. You're wondering, what does marriage have to do with me? Well, a lot, as we've seen. The church is the family of God. Right around here, these are your brothers and sisters, your fathers and your mothers in Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. So belonging to the church 
is much different than belonging to someplace like Costco. The church is the outworking of our marriage to Jesus. The implications here are enormous, loved ones, for our use of time, for our attention to the well-being of the church. This is your family, dear Christian. For our enthusiastic support of the mission of the church, mutual submission and love to each other. What does that have to do with marriage? Well, a lot, doesn't it? A godly marriage doesn't just happen. It happens when two sinners are being filled by the Spirit and are seeking to what? Love and serve each other. A Holy Spirit-created willingness not to be defensive, not to be thin-skinned, not argumentative, not seeking our own way. It is death to the prideful ego and the creation by the Spirit of humility. This means, as Winston Smith says, in marriage, we are to have an attitude of honor and not manipulation toward our spouse. That means we see our spouse as a person, not an object, that we honor them as one who has value and dignity, that we don't manipulate them to get what we want out of them, In our hearts, loved ones, that sin of manipulation is deep in all of our relationships. We sometimes give to get. We will often say something or do something for someone because we know what we get back. But that's not Christian love. Manipulators suck love out of marriage. Honor fosters love. So in marriage, it's not, I need you to build up my insecurity. It's not neediness. It's not looking for my spouse to fill up me and and, and give me affirmation. We get all that in Christ. Here's another application. If you're grumbling about your spouse, if you're seeing them as an obstacle between you and your happiness, Winston Smith says, you have slid into a mindset of manipulation. Because you're focused on what you want, not seeing your spouse as a person. Manipulation is me trying to change my spouse rather than trying to learn from them in mutual submission and love. Here's how Smith puts this. Attitudes of honor versus attitudes of manipulation. Honor says you belong to God, Manipulation, you exist to serve me. An attitude of honor, you're made in God's image. Manipulation, you're an object. Honor, I give without expecting a return. Manipulation, I give, get what I want from you. Honor, I want you to be successful. Manipulation, I need you to make me happy. Honor, God is using you to make me more like Jesus. Manipulation, you're the problem. You need to be fixed. Honor, I'll love you even if you don't respond in love. Manipulation, I'll love you as long as it works. Meaning as long as it changes you to be what I want. 
That's why verse 21 is so key in this text, loved ones. Marriage is about serving each other. It's a covenant relationship. It's not a consumer relationship. A consumer relationship is what you have with the grocery store, right? So when a better grocery store goes in that's closer to your house with a better product for a better price, goodbye old grocery store. (laughs) That's not marriage. Marriage is a servant heart that says, I am committed to joy. And in marriage, joy means looking for reasons to be thankful, not griping so much. Daily thanking God for the marriage, even though it's far less than perfect. Being kind. Being a peacemaker. Being committed to gentleness. As we talk about mutual submission, gentleness is something that doesn't get damaged in the process of being handled. Loved ones, that is so foundational as we go forward now to look at what Paul says in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. In the Greek, the word submit is not in verse 22. Very interesting, isn't it? It's in verse 21. The concept, of course, is there. I'm not saying that. It's in your Bible. But we have to understand, first of all, what this doesn't mean. Submission does not mean a wife is inferior to her husband. Men and women are made in God's image, as we've just said, with dignity, honor, and value. Equal. Equal in Christ, in spiritual privileges by faith in Christ. Submission does not mean a wife must tolerate any kind of treatment from their husband. If a husband directs his wife to do anything that goes against God's word or against her conscience that is formed by God's word, she must always obey God, not man. Darby Strickland, a book, Is It Abuse? Abuse is when one spouse pursues their own self-interest by seeking to control and dominate the other through a pattern of coercive, controlling, punishing behaviors. It's oppression. And dear Christian, if you are being abused, get help. Submission does not mean the will of your husband goes before the will of Jesus. So if your husband says, we're not going to church, I'm not going to church, you go to church, right? You don't say, well, I got to follow him here. No. Submission is not that the wife has less intelligence or competence. Men, if we're dead honest, right, we know our wives in many areas are more competent and wise than we are. The Bible teaches that. Submission does not mean a wife cannot follow God's call in their life into areas of work. We rejoice that many women are called to be nurses and bankers and CEOs and into medicine and business. A woman, married or unmarried, can hold leadership positions over men in the common civil sphere outside the institutional church. So important here. That's why I said we don't say more on this than the Bible. At times, God chose a woman to be raised up to lead his people. Esther, the queen. And in the book of Judges, Deborah leads at one point. Women in the church today carry out very important roles. 
But the Bible says these roles are distinct in leadership. That's really important here as well. 1 Timothy 3. If you haven't read it, look at that. Paul says there, men are called to the offices of pastor, elder, and deacon. For a woman to hold those offices would be to mimic the reversal of the roles in Genesis 3. Nowhere in the Bible does it say unordained men have more authority in the church than women. We don't live in the days of the Old Testament with the court of the women out there, right? Women ought to fully participate in the life of the church. And any man who thinks otherwise needs that washed out of him. Submission does not mean all women submit to all men. The Bible never says all Christian women submit to all Christian men in any given church or in any relationship. Wives, it's talking to you about what? Very clear, isn't it? Your husband. Submission doesn't mean you agree with everything your husband says. And submission is not teaching what some people in some movements today want it to teach. There's a movement out there in some places called biblical patriarchy, which says a woman is always under male authority. First, her father, then her husband, and then maybe it flips around to her son one day. The Bible never says that. A woman doesn't need to have a man as her spiritual head to be a flourishing, godly woman. So if you're a single woman, you don't have to think, i got to get a spiritual head. No. Paul equally respected female workers in the church. As you read Romans, Phoebe, Priscilla, Mary, Persia, Rufus' mother. Christ is our spiritual head. We saw that a few weeks ago in Romans 5. So what does submission mean? It means a wife's recognition of an ordered structure in which her husband is the person to whom she shows appropriate respect as to the Lord. An acknowledgement that there's a difference here in terms of authority in the marriage. He has a certain position that God has given him. And it's a heart attitude. It's an inner quality. Here's how Leanne Trees puts it. If you haven't read her, check her stuff out. Beautiful Christian mind. How does a Christian wife cherish her husband? How does she respect her husband? One way is companionship. Being his friend. She says, I go fly fishing with my husband because I love spending time with him. Another way is love. It's not submission against love, is it? It's submission in love. So here's one thing, wives. She says, ask this question, where does my husband tend to be discouraged or overwhelmed? Think about those areas. Love him in the midst of that and pray for him through that. The more you love God, both men and women, the better equipped you will be to truly love your spouse. Respect. So a Christian woman respects her husband as she says, God has given these things to him to do. He has a responsibility in this role. And kids, you notice this. You can see, by God's grace, the way mom respects dad. And kids, that's a picture of how we submit to Jesus, our Savior. Savior. 
And kids, you see the way dad loves mom? That's a picture of the way Jesus loves us. Not perfect, but it's a, a picture for you. Why does Paul say respect your husbands? Because a temptation for some women, not everyone, but some, is to use the power of words and emotions to diminish a husband's influence so that she takes control of the home. Do you remember Proverbs 27? A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. Drip, 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 drip. If I keep saying that, it'll drive you crazy, won't it? This is the idea of the constant challenging of the man, the constant redirection, the constant grumbling, the constant complaining. Here's how one woman puts it. How do I respect my husband? These are her words. I think of my thoughts, my words, my deeds. With my thoughts, what thoughts spring to my mind when I think of my husband? Are they honoring of him? In words, how do I speak to my husband when we're alone? How do I speak to him around the children? How do I speak about him to other people? Deeds. Do I show my husband respect through my actions? Do I freely show him physical affection? Do I listen when he's speaking? Or do my deeds communicate a lack of respect? The nonverbals, right? Inattentiveness, indifference. Do I interrupt him when he's speaking? Do I look away when he's talking? Do I forget or just fail to remember the things he's talked to me about? Here's some homework, ladies. Go home and talk to your husband and ask him, what are some specific ways I can show you respect? And talk about it with him. Paul is saying here, respect and cherishing go together. One way that you cherish your husband, ladies, is in the area of counsel. The Bible talks about Sarah and Abraham, Abigail and David, giving good and wise counsel to their husbands. We love to get counsel from our wise wives. We need to have correction as well. We are blind to so many things. And a godly wife is never a yes person. She offers correction humbly, honestly. So there's no topics that are kind of off the table. And the way we offer correction to, to each other, do you see how this imply, applies to all relationships? The way that you offer correction must be in love. If you don't do it in love, what will happen? Defensiveness, distance, alienation. A wife is devoted to her husband. She's trustworthy and dependable. And she honors her husband when she expects him to respect her in all circumstances. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Go home and pray about that. Talk about that with your spouse. That's what godly relationships look like. Romans 12, being patient in tribulation, being steadfast in prayer, not being wise in our own eyes. This is not just marriage, it's the Christian life. How do we live to glorify God? In marriage, we are helping each other become more like Jesus. So we need to confess, men and women, 
my arguing, my manipulating, my anger, my jealousy, my unforgiveness, my, and here's a really important application that struck me this week, my tendency to hold others to a higher standard of holiness than I expect of myself. Whether it's marriage, child-rearing, relationships, the Bible calls that self-righteousness. My utopian perfectionism. So we confess, you know what, I've got a perfectionism here that I'm expecting of my husband, my wife, my kids, my church. How does a wife cherish her husband? She maintains a good attitude. Proverbs 31, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of what is on her tongue? What does it say? Kindness. She has an attitude that evokes praise, one of kindness. She's content. So she's not continually grumbling and complaining about stuff. She's satisfied with her position, her calling, and what her husband provides. So here's one application. A subtle yet spiritually debilitating change happens in a woman when her dignity is measured by wealth, by the number of children, by the size of the house, by personal accomplishments, or by a husband's prestige. And you can flip it around with the man in many of those ways as well. She cherishes her husband when she's patient, forgiving, and forbearing. When she expresses thanks often, when she glorifies God above all else. Loved ones, this is impossible apart from God's grace. But this is what the Holy Spirit does to make us more like Jesus. There's no perfect marriage. But I'm afraid many people, like Paul Tripp says, have a law-based, not grace-based marriage. When it's law-based, it says, I've got rules. You better match up to them. When you don't, I will punish you. It might be a, a passive-aggressive withdrawal. It might be a verbal attack. But we need to give each other grace. We need to remember we have been forgiven much in Jesus. We are now, by God's grace, to forgive each other, to repent readily, to keep short accounts with each other. What does this look like for the Christian husband? Second, God's plan for marriage. Winston Churchill once went to a banquet in London, and they asked him, if you could be anyone else, who would you be? He thought for a moment. He said, I would like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. What is that teaching us? It's teaching us the joy and value of a good marriage. What's God's plan for the Christian husband? To be spirit-filled, to submit to Christ, to love his wife as Christ loved the church. In the first century world, this was totally foreign. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing, a possession like a house or a sheep. In Greek society, a woman was secluded from her husband. The pagans often discussed their wives as if they were complete strangers. That's a reminder, men, of the way we talk about our wives publicly. 
to praise them, to build them up, and not to talk about them like a pagan would, their wives. That is not, then, these pagan ways of thinking, what Paul means when he says the husband is the head of the wife. When Paul says this, he's also not saying this. The husband is not the federal head of the wife. He's not the representative of the wife. He's not the mediator of the wife. We saw that a few weeks ago. Christ is the only federal head and representative and mediator of sinners, men and women alike. So what does it mean? Well, it means he has an authority that is used to serve, not to control and not to be passive. One wife says, my husband hasn't made a decision about our family in two years. He comes and goes without any regard for my or the children's feelings or hearts. They don't even know him. He disappears and disappears. Passivity, laziness, indecisiveness, indifference, and apathy are the opposite of biblical headship. Think of Christ's authority. He is the one to whom we all submit as Christians. He has a loving, tender authority. He hears our cries, our prayers. He's not a bully. He's not lazy. He's not tyrannical. He's gentle to us. And he came to die for his church. He's the savior of the church. The husband is to model that. The biblical idea of headship is not taking charge. It's taking responsibility. It's not asserting our will. It's giving ourselves for the good of the other. It's the aroma in the home, men, that we, by the grace of God, by the Spirit, are to say, you know what, this home, I pray, will be marked by love and gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit, peace and patience and self-control, and the man takes the lead in that. Do you know the Bible talks of three great mysteries? Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound. That word mystery, it's a very interesting word. Here's the three mysteries. One, the Trinity. God is one in essence, three in person. Christ is fully man and fully God. That's a mystery. And now, Paul says, the church and Christ. Christ is in heaven and is bound and united with his church that he calls his body on earth. As we partake of the Lord's Supper today, we partake spiritually of Christ's body and blood in heaven. And marriage illustrates this mystery. So the mystery is not the marriage, loved ones, is it? The mystery is the union of Christ who's in heaven with his church right here on earth. How then are you to love your wives, men? As Christ loved the church. Christ's love for the church is the gospel. Our love is not. We cannot love our wives in that degree and in that perfection. But the model of Christ in his unending, unmerited, sacrificial love for his bride is to be the model for us. That means, men, there are no conditions to loving your wife. You don't say, okay, 
I'm going to love her if that meal is like I want it, if we're intimate tonight, if she's not crabby, if, no, that, that's not how a Christian thinks. That's not how Christ treated his bride. Our obligation, men, is to put aside our preferences and die to self. How did Jesus love the church? He loved a church that was unlovable, that wanted nothing to do with him, that was a rebel. He came and took our sins on himself. He gave us his righteousness. He died for us, not because we're lovely, but to make us lovely. He went to his church who despised him. Men, there's an application here. Don't harden your hearts. Don't be stubborn. But initiate and go to your wife. You say, well, she's in the wrong. What did we talk about before? Self-righteousness. That plank in our eye. Don't be stubborn. Provide, protect. Go and pray for the Spirit to bring about reconciliation. Men, take the lead here in terms of repenting. Some of you maybe have never repented to your wives. Some of you are, are perhaps thinking, well, how can I do that? God, by his kindness, gives you the grace where you are weak. We don't have the strength in and of ourselves. Humble yourselves. And I'm saying the same thing to me. Anything I say has been directed here during this week, believe me. Don't allow your wife to be an excuse to you to sin. Just like on the opposite side. That's important, men. But instead, nourish her and lead her Love her physically. So that means provide for her. The work you do, the job you do to provide food for the family, and that's a way to love her. Serve her in the home. Where does she really need and and want some encouragement in the home? This could be a number of places for a number of you. So applications here are across the board. It might be helping with laundry. It might be helping with the dishes. Taking the car to get an oil change. Just open your eyes to see how can I serve my wife around the home in a loving way. Could be a a number of things. What was the goal that Jesus had when he died for the church? It was to make his church beautiful and glorious and holy. That's what Paul is saying here. It was to remove her defects that the sanctifying work of Jesus would give us a purity that's not just at the surface level, but gets to the heart. That's internal, not external. Jesus says to his bride, I'm washing you. I'm making you to be more like me. Men, that's the example. You don't sanctify your wives, and neither do I my wife. Christ, by the gospel, through the Spirit, sanctifies None of us can meet all the needs of our spouse. Only the Lord can. But a husband must do all he can to understand the world of his wife. That means, men, leading her spiritually. That means maybe you struggle with family devotions and prayer, but tomorrow or tonight, go home and open up John 1. Read 10 verses. Ask her for input. Ask the kids to perhaps pray for Joe and his struggle with this or whoever in the church you're praying for. 
take the lead in it. Doesn't mean you have to do it all, but it means you take the lead and initiate. During the day, maybe you're reading something from a devotional, men or women. You read something, you say, I'm going to text this to my wife just as a way of encouragement. Not in a heavy-handed way, but in a way that shows you are living together before the face of God with a Godward direction in your life. Spiritual leadership is a privilege not to be done heavy-handedly, but gently. When it comes to the children, men, we should be responsible not to allow toxic things into the home, to protect the kids, to talk to the kids and, and to our wife about our hearts and our struggles. The tone we set is important. We want our wife as ourselves to love Jesus more than us. That's really key in this. How do we love our wives, loved ones like this? It means relational love. Maybe there's tension with in-laws. Maybe there's someone in your family or friends that speaks to your wife in a very harsh way. Protect her from that person. Maybe the kids are disrespectful. Talk to the kids about that. Discipline them in love. Don't say that, okay, that's okay, you can do that, right? Don't contradict her in front of the children. Encourage her to spend time with friends that help her to be more like Jesus. Love her emotionally. That means not belittling her, not talking down to her. One man says, my presence often made my wife's self-confidence vanish. When I was around, she doubted everything. That's not the way Christ loves his church. We are to build her up, that she would know her infinite worth to you, the husband, and to Jesus. That means treating her kindly, expressing her beauty to her verbally. You are beautiful on the outside and on the inside. God intended you to be attracted to each other. Affirm that. Build each other up in it. This means affection. Affection symbolizes security, comfort, approval. It says you're important to me. I'm concerned about what you're struggling with. Now, this is an area I think a lot of us men struggle with, right? I do. One thing you can do is ask your wife. Say, how can I show you affection? And women, help us here. We can't read your minds. The woman and the man think differently in a lot of ways. We know that. That's beautiful. But we need help. Our, uh, us guys, we're kind of stubborn and blind. Help us. One question to ask is this. Is my wife more like Jesus because she's married to me? Or is she more like Jesus in spite of me? The two are one flesh. Do you see how Paul says that? He's quoting from Genesis. So this shatters all of those false ideas that, okay, that's my wife over there. She's my partner. No, she is you. You are one flesh. One plus one equals one when it comes to Christian marriage. When you made those vows, your life changed forever, men and women. You are one flesh, so it's unnatural not to love her in this way, not to 
Cherish her. Guys, if you're like me and you get a bug in your eye, you don't sit around all day and say, I'm just going to leave the, the gnat in the eye, right? You run right to the sink. I'm kind of a baby. You open your eye and you try to flush out that gnat. You take care of your own body. Paul says that. That's normal, isn't it? All of us do that. So it is with your wife. If she's troubled by something, don't say, we'll wait till tomorrow. The cherishing aspect of marriage is often damaged by criticism, by unloving criticism. So what that does is it sends people retreating. When there's a critical, harsh spirit, there's no tenderness, and then there's no trust. Then then the intimacy goes, and then the connection goes. What can help with that? The gift of time. One man says, I've run out of time to tell you how many men in the course of my ministry were always saying to their wives, when they get through this next project, they will make time. Nothing wrong with projects. In one case, though, a man who was going to make time when the project was done had a stroke. She nursed him to the end of her days. He could not free himself from his commitment to all his projects. So what's wrong there? He's not loving his wife as his own body. He's loving his own use of time. Spend time together. Maybe it's going to caribou. Going for a walk in the neighborhood. As Paul Tripp says, it's the companionship. So if you're in the groove, you can go to caribou and have a blast. If you're not in the groove, you can go to the coast of New Zealand and have the worst time in your life. It's not about where you go. It's about the time together. What does your wife want? She wants you. She wants conversational communication. She wants intellectual love where you care about her mind. When you were dating, you talked all about those things, didn't you? So did I. Love her mind. Talk to her not about you, but about her. Talk to her heart. Ask questions, reflective listening in a gentle kind of way that is the way Christ cares for his church. Loved ones, only a profound life of devotion and prayer, only by the grace of God, can lead to a marriage that begins to look like this. This is not Pollyannish. This is God's word for us. We must not say more than the word says. We must not say less. But we must pray that the marriages of Christ's church will more and more reflect the love of Jesus for his Savior, for for his church, and and the love of the church for her Savior. That God would be at work among us at Emmaus Road. Those who are single, widowed, divorced, that we would look forward, all of us, to the day when Christ returns. When, as Paul says in verse 27, he will finally present the church to himself in splendor. As Paul says, this is the work of God's grace, and we long for the day of the new Jerusalem. When, we read, the new heavens and the new earth will appear, appear and the church will come down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we pray for this oneness in Christ together, that we as husbands and wives would have a physical, intellectual, emotional, and a spiritual oneness. We cannot do this on our own. It's only by our union, O God, by faith in Jesus. And so we pray by looking to Christ that husbands and wives together would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. For those who are single, we pray that if they desire to be married, you would provide for them a, a godly spouse. We pray in all of our relationships, oh God, break down self-righteousness. Break down defensiveness. May mercy replace accusation. May unity and love replace distance and alienation. Oh Lord, we need Jesus. We need your grace to do this. We pray that you would for the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.